Tonight we want to look at some specific testimonies about Jesus Christ. We call this Remarkable Statements About Christ. And we'll try to look at several of them. What we say about Jesus is very important. Our testimony, our confession about who he is and what he does has a lot to do with how people will understand who our Savior is. So in Matthew 16, notice verse number 16, Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for allowing us to be able to have this Bible study. Now as we look into the Word, we want you to speak directly to our hearts, open our ears, because we love you. We're so grateful for all you've done for us in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen, Amen. In this particular passage, Jesus and Peter are having a discussion And most Bibles will have a little heading that says Peter's confession of faith, because that is exactly what took place here. Jesus wanted to know what everybody was saying about him. He said, what's the scuttlebutt? What is the gossip? And they were saying, some are saying you're John the Baptist. Maybe he's come back to life. Others are saying you are Elijah or even Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. But Peter, his statement in verse 16 is important because it illustrates his personal belief. Number one, Christ or Jesus is the Christ. Now, people in the Old Testament were waiting for the Messiah. They were looking for the one to come to break the yoke of foreign power off of their backs. And the word Christ means the anointed one. And so when he said that he was the Christ, he was letting him know, I believe you specifically are the one who is anointed to deliver the children of Israel from the powers of foreign countries and also to do supernatural things. And when he also says he's the son of the living God, that's important because no one from Genesis to Malachi had ever really put together the idea that God had a son. So when Peter makes this statement, that's important. So for us, we identify Jesus as the Christ. We identify Jesus as the Son of God, even though today Jewish people still find that to be blasphemous. Even though today Muslims believe the sonship of Jesus to be a blasphemous thing. We understand that Jesus taught he was the Son of God, and it's clearly marked out in in the Gospel of John. So when we're talking to people, we affirm the things that are affirmed in Scripture, even if there are Scriptures that are stumbling blocks to people who refuse to believe. Let's turn now and let's go to John chapter 1. Let's look at another one here that's interesting. The Gospel of John chapter number 1, and there's a gentleman by the name of Nathaniel. And John 1, verse 49, Nathaniel answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Now this is the chapter where Jesus is telling people to follow him. And this is the chapter where you can see in verse 45, Philip becomes a follower of the Lord. He finds Nathanael and said, we have found the one that fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. And Nathanael said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So Nazareth obviously had a reputation. And there are some towns 
as you know, even around here and even down in Kansas, certain towns have a particular reputation and the reputation is not always good. This is why the question comes, can there any good thing, good person, can anything worthwhile come out of that particular village? And Nathaniel asks this question. So later, Jesus sees him in verse 47 and he calls him an Israelite in whom there's no guile. That means there's no deception. There's no deceit. There's no trickery. I don't know about you, but I'm starting to get warm in here. Can we just just a little bit? There? OK, here we are. So verse eight, then notice Nathaniel said, how do you know me from where do you know me? And Jesus said, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. So either by divine revelation, Jesus knew he was under that tree or he happened to pass by him at an earlier time. Regardless of what the answer is, Nathaniel's statement is that Jesus was a rabbi. Now, a rabbi in ancient times was someone who taught the ancient truths of Judaism, and they were keepers of the traditions of the elders. For Nathaniel to call Jesus a rabbi, he was acknowledging that he was the highest type of teacher, worthy of respect, and people should listen to him. That means that as a rabbi, he would have had disciples. But as you can see here, he also notes he's the son of God. But he goes further and says the king of Israel. So what is a king? Someone that rules with dominion and power. The last time Israel had a king that was really after God's heart would have been somebody like David. I don't think Herod would have been that kind of a person had that kind of description. But Herod was the king of Israel at this time. But Nathaniel says Herod has a rival and the rival is Jesus. And this is one of the reasons Jesus ended up in so much trouble later on and was crucified, because even the Romans were saying we have no king or ruler but Caesar. And everybody was saying that Jesus Christ was was the king. So these kinds of statements Although they affirm the identity of Christ, they also attract persecution. Because if you, if you say these things, you're going to make people angry and folks are going to be upset. If you say today that Jesus was a good teacher, you're probably not going to anger too many people. If you say that Jesus was a good philosopher... You're probably not going to anger many people. If you say he was a wise sage, you're not going to have a whole lot of people chasing behind you with hostility in their heart. But if you say he was God and you say he died on the cross for people's sins, then automatically now you're making him divine. And once you do that, this is what brings the offense into the, the conversation. To say that Jesus is the son of God is now to say that this God came into this world to die on the cross. If he had to die on the cross, then you're then acknowledging the Bible's testimony of him that he bore our sins. And if you're acknowledging that he bore our sins, then you're also saying you believe people are sinners. And if you're saying that you believe that people are sinners, you're saying that they are in need of a savior. And since Jesus is the Savior, you're saying that the people need him. And that's why when people pray today, the chaplains in the military are told, you can pray in the name of God, but don't pray in the name of Jesus. 
Because once you mention the name of Jesus, everything that I told you comes into play and people have all of this information packed into that name Jesus. They know he was born of a virgin. They know he lived without sin. They know he was crucified. They know the Bible teaches he was resurrected. And the same Bible teaches one day he's going to be our judge. And since we live in a world where people do not want to be accountable for their sins, the last thing they want to hear is that Jesus was king. But he was. And that's what the Bible teaches, regardless of who believes in it and who denies it. Uh, look at chapter four of, of John, the Gospel of John, chapter four. Let's look here at this woman of Samaria. According to verse 18, this lady had been married five times. And he said, Jesus said, he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. So he is saying, the man with whom you are living. You know, the older people would say, shacking up. That, that is not your husband. So they have this dialogue. And notice what, what she says, having had this discussion with Jesus. In verse 29, she runs back into the village, so impressed by him. She says, come see a man which told me all things that I ever did. Is not this the Christ? That would be an interesting person to meet. Somebody knew everything that you had done. I wouldn't want you to know everything I've done. And I certainly would not want to know everything that you have done in your life. Although it would make for some interesting sermon material. <laughs> if I knew some of the things that you did. I've had people say to me before, I just wonder when you teach and preach if you were, if you just been following me around all week long. <laughs> well, no, I hadn't been following anybody. It's just that there are certain things that come into all of our lives, certain things we all face, certain kinds of temptations we all have to deal with. But, but here's a lady, been married five times. Now, we all understand just from our friends, family members, personal relations, that when our relationship fractures and a marriage falls apart, you know how difficult the separation is and then the entire battle that goes along with divorce. Now think about doing it five times. Five times. So this lady, she probably thought, well, there's no sense in going through all that again. Why don't we just move in together and that'll be fine. Well, Jesus obviously wasn't pleased with the idea that the two were living together out of wedlock, but her statement concerning him lets us know that he was speaking directly to her heart and the perception that he had of the depths of her sin and her past deeds was remarkable to her. Now, if you've ever had somebody that was able to read your mail in a prophecy or somebody ministering to you, and just God was just showing them things about you in your life, then you, you have some idea what, what this lady here was experiencing with Jesus. But the Lord has a way of bringing to light the private things in our lives. And when he does, I mean, we, we feel so small, but when we accept what he has said and believe what he has said and repent and then become true followers of what he is saying, then just like this woman, we want to go tell everybody, you need to come see him. You need to come see her. 
You need to be a part of this and understand what Jesus is doing. And I think if, if, if the truth be told, this is how churches grow. This is how ministries develop. If you don't have people excited about you and excited about your ministry, it'd be hard to, to attract people to something that you're doing. You know? So if you've ever been in a, met somebody new and then you say something like this, uh, where do you go to church? And, and then, you know, some people, a smile will break across their face and they say, oh, I'd go to King of Kings, praise the Lord, keeping the devil on the run as we walk with the king. And, and then you ask somebody else and then you, they kind of drop their eyes and then they kind of mumbles, you know, secretly or something. They don't like almost like they don't want to tell you where they go. Well, if they're not encouraging and telling you where they go, do you think you're going to be attracted to go? No, this lady, she's at, she spent some time with Jesus at the well, ran all the way back into the city, said, come see a man. And all of the folks in the city knew this woman. Anybody been married five times has a reputation. And so they listened to this lady and they all to a man followed her outside of the city. And there they got a chance to see him. So that's the that's 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 genuine revival. And that's true evangelism. Okay, let's go to chapter 6 here in John. We're looking at some remarkable statements about the king. John chapter 6, and notice in verse 66. From this time, many of Jesus' disciples went back and didn't walk anymore with them. This is what we mean when we say people backslide. They turn away from Jesus. To slide backwards or to turn your back from the Lord in order to follow someone else or some other teaching. This is what backsliding is. And Jesus had a question for the disciples who had been listening to them. And he said, will you also go away? Well, the question is, what's, what's, what brought on this, this great turning away? Well, Jesus was making some statements in verse 53 and 54. And he said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. Well, that, that would turn a lot of people away. They don't understand what he's saying. And they obviously weren't picking up on his teaching about the fathers eating manna in the wilderness and him being the bread come down from heaven. And so when they started leaving in verse 66, his question in verse 67 led Peter to ask a question. To whom shall we go? Now, that's why I don't think anybody should ever leave the Lord. Who is there to turn to? To what is there to turn? Where are you going to go? If, if you think about backsliding, what's the point of backsliding? What is there back there that is so attractive to you? There's nothing in my past that appeals to me. And when you come out of sin, and God has redeemed you and changed your life, the only thing you see back there is sin, self-righteousness, pride, empty beer bottles, you know, a whole lot of stuff that that never really brought any kind of joy to your life. So you wonder why a crowd of people would leave him, but Peter had enough sense to ask a question. And then you can see in verse 69, Peter speaking for everybody, we believe and are sure that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. I don't know about all these other people that are walking away, but I'm telling you what we believe. That is what, what we should know. You, you have to be certain 
about your, your belief and your faith in God. And if somebody asks you, what do you believe about Jesus? You should be willing and you should be able to tell them what you believe. And you should not be ashamed. And you should be able to say it even when people that you know are turning and walking away from it. So here you are in the 21st century and you still believe that Jesus' blood was shed on the cross for your sins. But yet there's a mass of people in this nation that deny the blood of Jesus Christ has any atoning power at all. They will say that is a legend and that's not worthy of putting anyone's trust in. But yet as they turn and walk away from that, we're still saying the blood of Jesus redeems. No matter what anybody says. So there's always a group of people that are turning from the Lord while there's always a group of people that are staying with the Lord, and there's always a group of people that are turning to the Lord. So the way the harvest works, the gospel is preached, the gospel net is then cast, multitudes of people come on into the kingdom of God, and then, as it describes in the parable, you sit there and you divide the good fish from the bad fish. And the people who disbelieve in the truth of God's word they're going to be cast away because they don't want to trust what God said. But in the end, we who stand firm with what Jesus says, we're asking the question every day, to whom shall we go? So do I turn to atheism? No. Do I want to run toward communism? No. Why do I want to stay away from atheism? Because it denies the existence of God. Why do I want to stay away from communism? It also denies the existence of God. It supposedly says everybody's going to be equal. There's going to be parity between everybody, but there's no parity in any of these communistic countries because the people on top stay on top and the people on the bottom have no way of getting to the top. But when we think about the kingdom of God, the Lord is not a respecter of persons. And if you walk with him, the favor of God will fall on somebody who comes from a family that is not so good, just like it will fall on somebody who comes from a family that is a little bit better. And our character is what determines what God is going to do for us. So I'm not interested in turning from Jesus to go to Buddha. I'm not trying to run to Joseph Smith. I'm not trying to run into the arms of Hinduism. I'm not trying to find some form of witchcraft or Wicca. I'm not looking for anything that's going to worship a rock, a stone, a planet, the sun, the moon, the stars, anything like that. I'm not trying to chase after the horoscope. All I want to do is follow him who, whose words are eternal and are filled with life. And that's why this statement is so very, so very important. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, let's, let's go forward. Let's go to uh, John 11 here. John 11, we have a lady named Martha. And Martha was a lady who worked very hard. Yes, she labored very hard. And she has a brother who passed away. Yes, he, he died. And so in John chapter 11, let's just pick it up in verse, verse number 20. Then Martha, as soon as she heard Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat in the house, then said Martha to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother had not died. Now that's true. Had he been there, he probably would not because he would have he worked on that. But verse 22, but I know that even now, whatever you ask God, he'll give it to you. Now, that's a woman who believes in Jesus. Yeah. Anything 
you ask of God. She must have really seen Jesus do some wonderful things. Because there's nobody going to say that about a man if they haven't seen anything. So Jesus says to her, regarding her dead brother, your brother shall rise again. So Martha got real spiritual. She said, I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She said, oh, this is going to be wonderful. One day at the end of the age, the dead who have fallen in their faith, they are going to rise up and all of us are going to be together again. Totally missed out on what Jesus was saying. You think, think you've ever done that? God says something to you and then you misinterpret what he's saying. So verse, verse 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Really? He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. So over and over again, we keep running into this Christ and this Son of God. That is the one or those are the two particular truths that God wants us to see throughout the gospel. He's Christ and he's the Son of God, regardless of what modern commentaries say, and regardless of what people say over and over and over again. So Lazarus, he comes up out of the grave by the power of God, because the Lord says, Lazarus, come forth in verse 43. Supernatural, divine miracle. And then at the end of verse 44, he came walking out there wrapped in all of those grave clothes, totally blind, couldn't see where in the world he was going. And they said, loose this man and let him go. I love it. Yeah, absolutely love it. Go to chapter 20. Chapter 20. So here we have a gentleman by the name of Thomas. And Thomas was not there when Jesus first appeared to the disciples after the resurrection. But Thomas was one of these guys that said, look, I know everybody is telling me he is here and he's alive, but I'm not going to believe anything until I can put some fingers in the holes in his hands and in the hole in the side because I was there at Calvary. I saw what they did. I saw when the Roman soldier pulled back that mallet and he drove that nail into his hand and into the wood. That's what Thomas is thinking. I was there when they took him and hung him up on that cross and everybody was standing around and mocking him. And then I was there when they took him off the cross and the people started wiping the blood from his brow. And even when they put him in the sepulcher, I've got direct information that they sealed it with a Roman soldier. And there's no way on this earth you're going to convince me except I see him. He missed it the first time. He, he just he just wasn't there with them. So verse 26, eight days again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then Jesus came stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then he said to Thomas, 
Reach hither your finger, behold my hands, reach hither your hand and thrust it into my side and don't be faithless but believe. I just like to have been the one receiving that. Oh yes, I'd love to have been poking all around on the Savior to make sure that was him. And you can see Thomas' statement there in verse 28. He answered him and said, my Lord and my God. So now then, he puts together this title, Lord and God, for the first time in the gospel. For the first time in the gospel. Understandable to anybody, they believe that Jesus Christ was God. And that's what we should believe, always. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. The triune Godhead. Not denying any person of the Trinity, but acknowledging that each is eternal, coexistent, co-equal, having their own roles to play in the scheme of redemption and in the creation of all of this that we enjoy every day. Now, if these people in the Gospels could make these confessions about Jesus and do it in the face of fear, do it in the face of persecution, why is it that we sometimes are fearful of letting people know we're Christian? I think one of the best things you can do when you meet a new friend is let them know immediately you're a Christian. You say, well, how, how, how do I do that? Well, you... You know, you, you, you could be like Darren and just have one of them shirts on that said, I'm a Christian whether you like it or not. You, know, you, can, you can do like he does. He's always got a message in that way. But, but the main thing is, usually when you get involved with conversation with people, you're talking, the small talk, and then pretty soon you get into what are some of your hobbies, what do you like to do on the weekend, and all of that kind of thing. There's always a way to let people know that you like to spend the Lord's day with the Lord. Or there's a way to let people know that you like to get into Bible study and read the word of the Lord or to fellowship with the saints. You let people know that, then immediately two things occur. Number one, because you've made that statement, you know you're obliged to live according to what you're saying. Since I'm telling everybody I'm a Christian, I need to act like a Christian. Then the second thing is you you realize that the other party is not going to be looking at you to ensure that you live like a Christian. Now, they may not even know what a Christian is supposed to live like, but they have an idea. Maybe they have a cousin, a grandma, or something like that. And they know that a Christian is supposed to be someone that follows the Bible, even if they've never read the Bible, may not know what's in the Bible, but they have an idea that you're supposed to act like Jesus. So every day that that we're here on planet Earth, our lives should demonstrate that, and our lives should be in sync with our confession. If I'm a Christian, then let's be a Christian. Not half the time, not most of the time, not some of the time. Let's be a Christian all the time. And this is what we learn from these folks here in following the Lord. To not be intimidated by our people who are persecuting us. The uh, present conditions mean that if, if you're going to have a strong faith, then you've got to be willing to deal with everything that goes, goes along with that. So for adults, it's not always easy to deal with your peers who don't have faith in God. Because you get around some people and they're very aggressive and, and they're domineering. And if they 
even think you have any kind of faith in your heart, they become even more and more vulgar. I mean, they really go out of their way just to, to, to really become foul, to see how, how, how you act. You say, well, how do you respond to people like that? Well, you know, you don't respond in kind, you know, so you don't want to become vile just because they're acting like that. But, but if you get somebody who is going out of their way doing stuff like that, then you, you certainly, you know, you can still stand your ground with your belief in God. So somebody comes along and says, I can't believe you crazy Christians even believe all that. See, just trying to embarrass you in front of people. You just respond with a scripture from Psalm 14. Well, the fool that said in his heart, there is no God. You say that in the coffee area. Yeah. But, but here's the thing. If you let the devil push you an inch, he's going to come back another day and try to push you 12 inches. And he's just going to keep pushing you until he can push you right out the door. I was talking with a guy this past weekend, and I said, you work construction? I said, you know, construction and railroad crews and a lot of these different jobs, these are some pretty pretty rough characters you got to work with. He said, that's exactly, and he's a little tiny guy, you know, and, and he ended up becoming a boss. And so I said to him, well, what was it like in your early days working construction? He said, well, I had guys that, you know, they were bigger and brawnier and burlier than I ever was. And he, he said, they go out of their way to say things to me that were terrible. He said, one time I helped a homeless man and the man just came into our little construction area, was going through the trash looking for something to eat. And he said, I stumbled upon him as he was going through the dumpster. And the man was so embarrassed. And he said, I'm so sorry. I was just looking for something to eat. And the guy told him, said, go ahead. If you're looking for something to eat, that's, that's not a problem at all. So he helped him. The guys in the construction crew were watching him. And later on, he said the people started mocking him and teasing him because they saw him hug the homeless man and then have a prayer with him. He said pretty soon they started slashing his tires, just trying to get him to quit the construction crew, trying to intimidate him, you know. But he said his faith in God was too strong for him to just be pushed out like that. He said that happened more than one occasion. But in the end, God continued to promote him, put him in a position where he could minister Jesus Christ to some of the people that now were under him, who at one time were his peers. So as a believer, You'll never know what kind of favor God will grant to you when people are trying to push you around, but don't allow them to rob you of the testimony that you have with God. There's always people that will try to do that, but, but we don't want that to happen. Let me give you a couple of more scriptures here. Let's, let's go to uh, Acts chapter 8. Here's the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts chapter 8. Praise the Lord. Now, in a, in a good Bible, this verse is going to be there. But in, in some of them other Bibles, this verse may not be there. Acts chapter 8. Notice Philip in verse 37. Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may, you mayest. He want, this man wanted to be baptized. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So you remember this story of the Ethiopian eunuch. He had come to Israel because he wanted to worship God. And then 
Philip was told by an angel to go down here to this chariot. He got up in the chariot, started witnessing to him, telling him all about the Lord. And then you can see here, he must have told him about baptism because he said, I'd like to be baptized. What's hindering me? And he said, nothing. If you believe. So this is why you hear people describe baptism as believers baptism, because it only really makes sense if you believe. What, what good is the water if you don't believe in God? And if, 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 if you don't understand the need for the water, then you're certainly not going to understand the presence of sin. So the whole point, as Peter describes it, he says that going down in the water and coming up is a figure. It's a type of the washing away of an individual's sins. God does an inward work in our heart by the blood and because of the cleansing of our sins through the blood, we now go down in the water and come up as a type of what God has done internally. So we do it outwardly in front of people, in front of witnesses. And this is why he said to Philip, you may be baptized. And the man said, I believe. So the person who believes in the Lord should follow the king down into the water and be baptized. Beautiful testimony. I love uh, when we do that, we get a chance to say to people, okay, we're getting ready to, to baptize you. So-and-so is here in the water. Folks are standing up wherever they're standing as we're getting ready to do the baptism. I say, this person here is going to give a testimony of their faith in the Lord before we put them under the water. And they'll say, my name is so-and-so. I came to know Jesus Christ, and I'm so glad I had this opportunity to share my faith and show my faith in the presence of all of these people. Whatever they say, it's going to be something like that. And then we're going to say, okay, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, taking them right down in the water and bringing them right up, and then we're all rejoicing and praising God. It means something to the baptizee because the baptizee has had an experience with God. See? Totally different than when someone has to tell you years later that it happened on the ninth day that you were here on planet Earth. And you have no memory of it at all. So as a Christian, all of us should want to be baptized and go down in the water. Beautiful testimony. All around this earth, there are people who the moment they're baptized, the government then believes you have truly converted to Christianity. And that's why a lot of people end up with a lot of persecution after that. Now, over in Russia, some of them like to be baptized in wintertime. You know, when that water is like 20 below. You say 20 below, is it, it's, there's still running water? Oh, yeah, there's still running water. Yeah, there's still running water. You go to some of them lakes over there in Russia, it's cold, I'm telling you. It's, they, they're heading on out there, folks. And, and you, see, you, you turn to some of them National Geographic channels, oh, it's frigid out there, and you still see them Russian ladies that are like 75 in their bathing suits, and everybody's trying to get to that cold watering hole, and they're all diving in. I've got friends that baptize people in cold, cold, frigid, frigid water like that. I won't be doing it. <laughs> Amen. Amen. I'll watch, but I won't be doing it. I've always been a spring, summer, and early fall baptizer myself. I just, 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 just works out better that way rather than, than any of us having to go out there and be extremely cold. If I can see my breath, we don't need to be out there. There's no doubt about it. 
But uh, for any of you that haven't gone down in the water, spring will be coming. We got a river around here. All we've got to do is head down there and wade right on out there into the water. And Pastor, as he always says, he promises to bring you up before the bubbles stop coming up. <laughs> if, we hide, if we hold anyone down there a little bit longer than they need to be there, It'll only be because their last name is Ireland. And then we'll bring them right on up. Amen. <laughs> All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you that we could look into the scriptures and see that there were so many people in the Gospels that were able to put their trust in your son and then confess it openly in front of everybody. So God, help us to be the same way. Help us not to be intimidated but to be encouraged to know that our testimony of you can affect a whole lot of other people as they listen to us. I pray for each one of us you would help us to witness to other people as they are in our sphere of influence, as they come into our homes, as we spend time with them on the job. We know that we don't have to just quote scripture, but just by the way that we live, let our lives be a living epistle. And God, I pray that you continue to expand and grow your kingdom right here in this county. In the mighty name of the Lord Jesus, and everyone said, Amen, 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 Amen.